Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another labor and employment law update from Littler's Workplace Policy Institute, or WPI. I'm Eileen Schumann, co-chair of WPI. Well, the first nine months of the Trump administration have seen some significant changes in workplace policy. A number of the previous administration's policy have been are in the process of being reversed, whether through legislation, regulation, or litigation. And caught in the middle of some of these changes are employers who have to interpret these changes, implement them on the ground, and anticipate what's coming next. Joining me today to explain these developments is Workplace Policy Institute's other co-chair, Michael Latito. Michael, thanks for joining me here today. Hi, Elise. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Michael. Well, first of all, at a high level, I'd just like to get some of your observations about how President Trump's movements in labor and employment law matched up to your expectations and predictions when he was inaugurated. I think generally speaking, um, they're fairly consistent with the expectations, although perhaps moving more slowly than we had anticipated. Clearly, the Department of Labor, uh, Secretary Acosta, has shown leadership in removing the administrative interpretations on joint employer as well as independent contractor. He's moving aggressively with respect to workplace preparation on the apprenticeship issues, which was, I think, widely expected. We'll get into some of the other issues in more detail, uh, such as on overtime. So I think generally we're going in in the right direction. But I I think that there was a a huge expectation that, uh, from an employer's perspective, a great deal of what the prior administration had implemented was going to be reversed uh, in the blink of an eye. The system doesn't permit those sorts of things to happen, and it takes a great uh, many people to make those things happen. And people are policy, which gets us to, I think, one of the key issues, at least. Why don't you uh, uh, give us your views of the status of the nominees at the Department of Labor? Because for the first several months, there were, I don't know, I think four uh, political people at the department overseeing 15,000 employees. So what could go wrong? (laughs) <laughs> well, well, Michael, um, it takes a lot to turn a ship, and it takes people at the top to be able to do that. And as you noted, there are a number of key positions, key political positions and appointments on top of the Department of Labor that remain unfilled. There are some critical positions whose nominations are pending. Pat Pizzella has been nominated for the Deputy Secretary of Labor, an incredibly important position. A hearing was held on this nomination by the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee back in July, but, you know, that hasn't moved yet and will hopefully move through the full Senate shortly. We also have another key position and nomination, and that's Cheryl Stanton of South Carolina to be the Wage and Hour Administrator. The Health Committee, the Senate Health Committee held a hearing on her nomination on October 4th. Again, you know, we are, you know, hopeful that that the full Senate could act on her nomination shortly. But again, you know, that's a that's a key position that remains unfilled. And Michael, you talked about the reversal of the prior administrators' um, interpretations on independent contractor and joint employer status. 
And while those have been um, revoked, I think certainly we're going to have to uh, wait for new leadership at the Wage and Hour Administration to see a new policy actually set forth. We have another nomination to the position of Solicitor of Labor. That's an incredibly important position. Cato Scanlon is the nominee for that. But again, there has been no action to date yet in the Senate on that. And, you know, we also have a nomination to the Mine Safety Health Administration. So the bottom line is, you know, those nominations to key positions that have been made still have to make their way through the the Senate process, which has been, you know, a relatively slow process. And there's still other key positions whose nominations have not yet been announced. For example, the head of OSHA dealing with all workplace safety issues, and also the head of the Employee Benefits Security Administration, among other positions. So it's been slow going, but I think that we're still seeing as more political folks do come in place, that we are seeing um, more changes underfoot at DOL. And I guess I'd turn it back over to you now, Michael, to, to give your perspective on what's going on at the NLRB and the, the status of appointments over there. Well, with respect to uh, to the board, uh, we finally have uh, a full five-member board with the nominations and approvals of Marvin Kaplan and Bill Emanuel um, as board members. Mr. Emanuel joined uh, last week, and that's the good news. Uh, you know, the the less than good news is that the current chair, uh, Phil uh, Miss Marrera's term expires on December 17th. So we have approximately 10 weeks or so for a fully functioning board to issue decisions. There's 350, probably 400 cases pending before the board. And my understanding is that they deal with some of the most critical policy issues that uh, students of the board are concerned about appropriate bargaining units, access to property, Section 7 rights, uh, handbook policies, uh, these sorts of things, and many others. And it remains to be seen how many decisions dealing with those critical issues are going to issue between now and December the 17th. The board tends to accommodate outgoing members so that their work product is um, uh, is utilized, and so I'm anticipating uh, a busy holiday season that while most people are celebrating, I and others like me will be reading uh, labor board decisions. Um, there has not been an announcement uh, about who's going to replace Phil, which is disappointing because you've already mentioned that this nomination process is cumbersome and slow. And so I'm anticipating that very unfortunately there's going to be hiatus from around the middle of December. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't get until March, uh, given the Senate calendar, before once again we have a fully functioning board. One more piece the general counsel, who is, in my view, the most powerful person at the board as the chief prosecutor, his term expires 
on um, October 31. The incumbent is Richard Griffin. Peter Robb has been nominated by the president uh, to replace Mr. Griffin. Mr. Robb had his hearing with uh, Cheryl Stanton uh, about a week ago, and my understanding is that there'll be a markup somewhere around uh, the 18th, and then hopefully confirmation maybe the last week of October so that Mr. Robb will be walking in as Mr. Griffin is walking out. That's a very, very important position. So that's kind of what's happening at the board. And at least in a similar vein, there have been some nominations at the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. Yes, there have been. But nine months into the Trump administration, it's still effectively uh, status quo. And that's because the current makeup of the commission, the five-member commission, is two to one in favor of um, Democrat appointments. And there have been two vacancies for which President Trump has nominated two Republicans to fill that spot. But until they're actually confirmed and in place, you're really not going to see any changes coming from the EEOC in terms of its direction. Those nominees are Janet Dillon, who has been nominated to serve not only as a member of the commission, but also its new chair when she is confirmed. And the other nominee to fill the other vacancy is David Gade. And both of those individuals have had a hearing by the Senate Health Committee back in September. It's my understanding that the Senate Health Committee will vote to approve those nominations shortly, um, hopefully, you know, later this month and actually have them in place at the commission by Thanksgiving. You know, they've got to get uh, on the docket and line up behind a lot of other nominations that are pending to get floor time. But, you know, that's really why employers might be wondering why we haven't seen a change in direction in the EEOC policy. And that's because, um, you know, you haven't seen that shift in direction from um, Democrat to Republican control that you will see after those two nominations are in place and confirmed. But, you know, there's something else that is an incredibly important decision, as many employers know, and that is the general counsel position of the EEOC that has remained vacant after David Lopez, who was the GC under the Obama administration, um, after he resigned upon the expiration of his term. So we don't even know who the nominee for that position is going to be yet. So I think employers are certainly going to keep a lookout on that important position and what's going to be filled. I do want to note that while the EEOC has effectively been in a been a standstill because of the, the nomination process and the vacancies, employers have actually turned to and seen some changes with respect to EEOC policies coming from the White House itself, and specifically the White House Office of Management and Budget. And what I'm talking about here is with respect to the new EEO-1 reports, and as many employers may recall, um, and I'm certain they were grappling with how to implement these, um, new changes proposed under the, the prior you know, administration and commission that would make changes to the EEO-1 report to require that employers also provide pay data. On August 29th, the OMB, the White House Office of Management and Budget, actually stayed those changes to the EEO-1 
reports taking issue with the EEOC's burden estimates on the costs to employers of implementing those changes and also calling into question the practical utility of those. So I think, you know, recognizing that there was not going to be a new board in place to reverse or make any changes to that EEO1 report prior to employers really having to prepare for their implementation, the OMB stepped in and put a stay on that. But I do want to caution that I don't think that this is the end of the story on the EEO1 report. I think the issue is not going away and, and perhaps this new commission when it is in place, is going to revisit that issue in one form or another. Michael, you know, turning it back over to you, what do you make of the, the nomination process, and why do you think it, it hasn't moved more quickly, and, and what kind of impact do you think that has had on the new administration's agenda? Well, I think it's had a major impact, and of course, uh, we're focused on labor and employment, but it's it's not limited from a nomination perspective to labor and employment. It really goes throughout, you know, the entire administration. The president has talked about trying to eliminate waste and not necessarily wanting to fill all of these positions. I think there's, I don't know, four or 5,000 individuals that the president gets to approve. So it is a large number, and sometimes you look at these job descriptions, and frankly, you kind of, you know, shake your head and say, you know, you've got a secretary, an assistant secretary, an assistant to the assistant secretary who you know, goes on and on and on. And so I'm sympathetic with that. But on the other side of the ledger, I know that during the time frame from the actual election back in November and taking office uh, the latter part of January, a great deal of work was done on finding people that wanted to serve in the administration. A lot of work was done as far as vetting those individuals. And I think it's somewhat disappointing. And now uh, I think there's also a problem in finding individuals because people don't fully appreciate how long this process takes, how cumbersome it is, and how intrusive it is with the background materials that have to be completed, the FBI checks that have to be done, which are now taking about two months. And you sort of put your life on hold. And you know, like one individual in the process just had to withdraw because of some buying and selling of houses. Uh, life goes on. Children have to go to school. People need to know where they're going to live and so on and so forth. So this has definitely had an impact. Again, we're focused in on L&E, but it has an impact on, on a broader, broader level. So that's not to say that some changes haven't really taken place. I mean, the persuader rule, for example, it's not completely dead, but it's certainly on life support. There's been some other changes, but perhaps one of the most dramatic, at least, is the overtime rule. So okay. why don't you share with our audience uh, where we are with that? Well, well sure. Um, and Michael, please um, chime in, too, on this. But I think this is one of the biggest questions you know, facing employers was what was the, the new administration going to do with respect to overtime? And uh, Littler's own Maury Baskin led, I think, the, the largest coalition of, of employer associations and groups successfully challenging the overtime rule issued under the Obama administration, and a permanent injunction is, is now in place. So the question comes back to what is this new administration going to do about that? And they have issued a request for information seeking public comment 
about what to do with the rule, what shape it's going to take. I think that most folks anticipate that we're not going to go back to the way things were, um, have been since, you know, 2004, that some update is in order, but it's a question of where that, uh, where that threshold is. So I think what we have seen from this new administration is, you know, putting the regulatory steps in place to, you know, figure out what form a new overtime rule is going to take and, you know, certainly um, incorporating the public and business groups um, and other stakeholders into that process. Michael, do you have anything to add on that? Well, if you have no life, there are 150,000 submissions on the request for information. Uh, They're all online. You can go and read them. And, you know, they cover the gamut uh, with respect to whether or not there should be regional differences, a CPI or not, whether there should be uh, focus on different jobs versus all jobs. Uh, It's really sort of all over the place. And uh, Ms. Stanton, uh, who at least you mentioned uh, as a nominee for Wage and Hour, happened to be um, at her hearing, and she was asked about this and whether or not she intended to appeal the litigation and the granting of the injunction. And while she could not make a particular commitment, she did say that what employers want is certainty. They need to have guidance. They need to know what the number is. Can we get there faster through the regulatory process as opposed to continue to litigate a case, which I thought was a very mature answer. And so it remains to be seen what's going to happen Um, And hopefully she will be confirmed quickly. There's now an acting person in place who I guess is going to stay uh, after Ms. Stanton is approved. And based upon the hearing, I think it's a a virtual certainty that she will be. So this overtime thing is continuing to play out. And while we tend to focus in on, you know, some of the issues that perhaps uh, generate a little bit more PR that might be a little bit more interesting because of some of the drama that goes around them, like whether or not people can kneel down in the national anthem. The fact is that uh, with respect to overtime, it impacts just about every single employer. So this is a huge deal, and we've been very engaged with that. And, Michael, also you mentioned that the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division had already rescinded the prior administration's guidance on joint employer that I think, you know, many folks would see as a move, obviously, in in the right direction there. But can you tell me what else is going on with respect to joint employer, either through the regulatory process or or legislation? Sure, there's a lot uh, happening with respect to joint employer in addition to the AIs. Uh, So we're waiting for a decision from the D.C. Circuit on the Browning-Ferris case, which uh, sort of ignited this whole issue about trying to combine separate employers uh, as one with some of these new theories of potential or indirect control. Obviously, I'm simplifying here. I think that, um, well, I know uh, that there's at least one case pending before the board the NLRB, that is, on the joint employer issue. Uh, So if the board was going to perhaps depart from Browning-Ferris, they certainly have a vehicle to do that because the board issues decisions based upon the cases that are before them. And if you don't have a factual scenario that raises the issue, then the board just can't issue an advisory opinion. So the board does have an opportunity to do so. Let's see uh, what it is that they actually actually do. I, I hope that 
you know, Ms. Stanton, and I think you alluded to this, uh, you know, would issue additional guidance or administrative interpretation on joint employer. But in the meantime, there's also legislation, Safe Local Business Act, uh, which will address the joint employer definition under the NLRA and the FLSA with a direct and immediate control test, which is the traditional test. This has now been marked up and out of committee at at in workforce uh, on the House side. Um, I think it's the intention to get this on the floor of the House. There's uh, bipartisan support. Um, and uh, I think that uh, we're going to get this legislation passed by the House. Unfortunately, there's no companion in the Senate, but the strategy is to try to build the momentum um, and then take that next step. We'll see what happens in the Senate, where a lot of things go to die, quite frankly, because of the 60-vote rule. So we'll see. Um, but a lot of activity on joint employer, which is obviously critically important. And, you know, at least we're, we're talking about the issuing of, of other executive orders or guidance it somewhat flies in the face of, you know, the president, uh, you know, being very direct on regulatory reform, including the so-called two-for-one order, removing two regulations for every new one that's issued. Uh, what kind of an impact do you think that's going to have on the regulatory agenda at the Department of Labor um, and other agencies that are of interest to this audience on labor and employment? Well, I think it's going to have a significant impact. And I think what you're really seeing is a very different approach to rulemaking and regulatory action than under the prior administration. And, you know, certainly the the whole um, theme behind these executive orders, including the two-for-one executive order and executive order, you know, dealing with, you know, regulatory reform, is that the agencies, including the Department of Labor, take a very close look at the burden that these regulations have on business and job creation, as well as really looking at their effectiveness. You know, do they really accomplish the goals that they purport to accomplish in an effective way? So I think it's just important to um, see that through the lens through which this administration, um, the White House, including all of its agencies, are charged with looking at the rulemaking process. But I think from a very practical perspective, you know, what it means is it's it's going to really serve as a break on issuing new regulations, regulations, that is, that impose a new requirement or burden on business or, um, you know, regulated community, including at the Department of Labor. So I think that while we've been talking in most instances about, you know, regulatory process that's going to be used to officially reverse regulations put in place under the prior administration, when we talk about actually issuing a new regulation with a new burden, I think that's going to be quite a different story. And I think a lot of questions remain about how this two-for-one order is going to work, but I do think that it's going to serve, as I think it's intended to, um, as a real break on the issuance of of new regulations and certainly looking at the entire impact of the regulatory burden, um, not just from the Department of Labor, but, uh, you know, government-wide, if you will, on um, on businesses. So we'll have to see how this plays out. But, uh, you know, I would not expect to see the proliferation of new uh, workplace policy regulations by any means that we saw under the Obama administration, particularly in the last year. 
You know, I think you make a very good point that, uh, you know, we tend to focus on what's changed, but perhaps the major change is that since the current administration has been in place, the avalanche of workplace regulations that we had been treated to, especially, as you say, in the last year or so from the prior administration has stopped. And I know, you know, you and I would, uh, would joke and you wake up in the morning and say, you know, what's the latest challenge for employers? that we have to report on. That has stopped. I I think going back to one of the original questions of this uh, podcast is, you know, what's the expectation or how has the execution been against the expectation? I I think there was a higher degree of expectation that things would be reversed and done very quickly. Uh, Things are going much slower from that perspective. But as we've tried to identify here, you know, progress is certainly uh, certainly being made. And Michael, I do want to make a point that just because there may not be a, a, a new avalanche of, of new regulations, that the Department of Labor and other agencies, NLRB and, and EEOC, even under new leadership, still have their enforcement mandate and are enforcing the laws and regulations that are on the books. So we don't want to create the impression for employers that you know they don't have to worry about their enforcement obligations anymore. I think they very much do. But even with respect to an enforcement philosophy, I think we are going to see, you know, more of a, of a focus on compliance assistance and, and helping employers understand and comply with the law, which I think is going to be an important shift for employers as well. And, you know, we've been talking about the, the regulatory agencies and, and the White House, but let's, let's talk about Congress for a minute. And, what about the legislative agenda? And with the Republicans' efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act having failed, what's coming up on Congress's agenda and what should the employers be looking out for? Well, the Congress, um, uh, as I think everybody knows, is that a lot of trouble passing legislation, not so much in the House. The House passes a tremendous amount of legislation gets very little publicity uh, for doing so, and sometimes um, asking members to take uh, very difficult votes, um, and as I said a few minutes ago, then to see uh, those efforts uh, die in the Senate. Of course, the Affordable Care Act, regardless of what an individual's beliefs are, is an example of that where the House did take action and then it uh, dies in the Senate. Some people applaud, some people cry, some people don't know how to feel, but that just happens to be a fact. I think that clearly the, the major issue that Congress is dealing with right now is tax reform tremendous amount of uh, discussions on these issues, very unclear um, as to exactly what's going to happen. There is no lack of intrigue in Washington, D.C. with uh, personalities such as the latest efforts between the president and uh, Senator Corker. So on and on and on, keep going back to people or policy. Uh, People are very, very much an important component of what actually happens, and the relationships do matter. So we'll see what occurs with respect to uh, to tax reform. Obviously, has significant implications for uh, businesses as well as for individuals in the country. And I think that um, uh, one of the other things that there was a high degree of expectation for was infrastructure. And while I don't know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if 
if people uh, thought that the first year of the Trump administration was a mulligan, uh, and if they could do it all over again, wouldn't they lead for infrastructure um, with some sort of a tax reform and trying to get the trillions of dollars of offshore back in order to put into infrastructure spending, make a deal with the building trades and some of the other unions in order to do that, promote those uh, high-paying jobs and, uh, and deal with the Affordable Care Act later. But unfortunately, in real life, this isn't a golf course and you don't get a mulligan. So we are where we are. We'll see what happens in some other areas. A lot of discussion these days about DACA, the whole immigration debate. And uh, uh, I don't know. Um, It's very, very difficult given the intense and rather extreme polarization that exists here in Washington uh, for uh, for you to see a path forward on a lot of these very 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 contentious issues that that people have um, extraordinarily uh, strong feelings about and with certainly good reason. So it's tough, uh, which is one of the reasons why the regulatory agenda is so critically important and why having the people in place to actually write those regulations and implement those regulations in the field are so critical. But with a lot less legislative activity happening at the federal level, there's certainly activity at the state level, and maybe at least we can uh, we can close with a couple of your observations on the state issues. Well, I think that this is this is a pattern that we already saw during the um, you know the last years of, of the Obama administration, where the lack of legislative action on many labor and employment issues only gave momentum to states to take action. And I think with the change of administration and the the regulatory reversals that we're seeing, I think that's going to fuel state action even more. And I think we've already begun to see that with respect to issues like paid leave and equal pay and scheduling restrictions and restrictions on employer drug testing. I think that we're seeing a proliferation of state and even local activity to try to step in where where Washington is not. And I think that that is only going to accelerate over uh, the next year and the, the remainder of President Trump's term, most likely. Um, and I think uh, as a final point, I think that it's important, you know, to note that what you're seeing in one state, why it's so important, particularly for those uh, employers with operations in multiple states is is you really see a ripple effect. And what happens in one state creates more momentum um, in other states. And Michael, I know you're from the great state of California, and I think you can certainly see how some initiatives that have begun in California are finding their way um, to the other coast and, and throughout the country. So I think the question might be, you know, at one point, is there an appetite for the federal government? actually for for legislative action to step in and and to create at least a uniform and clear rules of the road so employers don't have to deal with the compliance challenge of all these different jurisdictions and requirements and that i think uh, remains to be seen as well and with that michael any um, concluding thoughts that you have well, let's not forget the uh, the Supremes, and uh, you know, especially on the state initiatives, a lot of those are begun by uh, unions, and a lot of those unions are very involved in the political process. Um, and if the Supreme Court 
decides that requirements in the public sector for people to pay dues uh, violates First Amendment rights, that's certainly going to have an impact on public sector unions. And the Supreme Court also had oral argument uh, uh, a week ago uh, dealing with the arbitration cases. So we've been focusing here on the executive Uh, the regulatory, the legislative, but then there's also the courts. And uh, you got to put it all together uh, along with the states, uh, not only at the state level, but also at the city and county level to get the amalgam of all of the rules and regulations uh, that basically define for an employer the definition of fairness for your employees. And that increasingly is a challenge. And uh, I don't think that that fundamental challenge is going to change. It just may deviate a little bit of intensity, but the appetite continues to be there. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This was a great conversation uh, today, and we certainly you know, look forward to additional discussions on important workplace policy developments in Washington and around the country. And for those of you listening, thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to Michael and I. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com podcasts.